I want you to think of a scene in a news program after a tornado, a hurricane, or a house fire. Imagine that the camera's on me and I'm the father and I own the house that's just been devastated by the tornado and next to me are my wife and children. You've probably seen this play out before and the newscaster or the news interviewer asks the person, what are you thinking right now? And invariably the person with the destroyed home says, my wife and kids are safe and that's all that matters. So the home's gone, devastated. And in that moment of trial, he's communicating what really matters to him. Imagine the horror if he said this, well, my wife and kids made it, but I really like that house. I'm gonna really miss my man cave. My, my 40 inch screen TV, it's gone. I mean, they're alive, but you know, the TV is what I, I mean, you can imagine, it just would be just horrendous, gut-wrenching, awful. And what hardship does is it, is it shows us what we really value. In fact, maybe think of it this way. It shows us what we valued all along, but ease and tranquility and normalcy causes us to act as if those things aren't all that important. For instance, imagine a mom who just a few weeks earlier got really mad because her kids were playing in the house and they broke her favorite lamp. And she just was really mad about it and now the house is burned down. Or a dad who pulls into the driveway, theoretically of course, and there are bikes in his parking spot in the garage and it's told the kids over and over and over. And he gets out and he's mad, shuts the door and he's more upset about the bikes than he's grateful that he has kids in his house who own bikes. Or a mom who really gets mad about how messy the room is all the time and then when the kids go off to college, looks at an empty room and thinks, I miss a messy room. You see, hardship tends to be clarifying and what can happen is that difficulty or suffering, if you will, can actually cause us to kind of reverse engineer our lives, kind of remind us what's really central and what it is that we should have loved even more in the first place, should have valued. James is writing to a group of Christians who are under the hard press of suffering, hard press of persecution, perhaps even a famine, and James 100% believes the gospel. He knows that the Christians that he's writing to believe the gospel, and he wants them to live out that gospel in real and practical ways. And in our text today, we're going to see that James addresses two groups of people, and he addresses them as to how they are to respond uniquely when suffering or hardship comes their way. And he addresses the lowly, or think of them as the poor, and he addresses the rich. And how should the lowly person and the rich person think about how they navigate a world as Christians filled with difficulty? So what I want to do today is to show you two principles in this great reversal. So two principles, two ways to think when you're confronted with the reality that life isn't quite what I thought it was going to be. And I promise you, for some of you, you're gonna experience another issue this week when you're gonna to need to apply right what you're hearing right now and reminding yourself as a Christian who you really are. Because what James tells us is this, these are the two points, that we should boast wisely as we think eternally. 
So we're to boast wisely as we think eternally. James essentially wants you to rejoice in the right things, to kind of reset your heart, to live in a, a vertical reality as you deal with the horizontal challenges. Or you can think of it this way. James wants you to know who you are so that if you're rich or if you're poor, in whatever category we'll talk about what that means, that you'll really know who you are at the foundation of your identity. So first, boasting wisely. I'm using the word boasting here, not in the sense of sinful boasting, but rather in terms of what it means to celebrate. And James wants the lowly and the rich to celebrate intentionally. And yet what you're gonna find here is that what he encourages both the lowly and the rich to do runs countercultural to the world in which we live. And suffering just simply manifests what a broken world we have and how uniquely it is that Christians can live in this world. If you look at verses nine and 10, you'll see that he calls for two kinds of boasting or two kinds of celebrating. The lowly man should boast in his exaltation and the rich man should boast in his humiliation. What's he talking about? Let me tell you what this text means and then I'm gonna unpack it. James is exhorting believers to celebrate who they are before God, not who they are before other people. He's encouraging Christians when the hard press of circumstances comes into their life to be reminded, who am I in Jesus? And to celebrate that as a strategy for dealing with the difficulties of a life that's proven to be hard. This kind of boasting is counterintuitive. It doesn't fit with how the world works. And that's James' point. For, just for example, as a general rule, and we have to make some general statements, they don't apply in every scenario, but as a general rule, the poor are not famous or powerful, generally. And generally, the rich are not humiliated. In general, most people would rather be rich than poor. They'd rather be praised than humbled. And so James is talking here about a reversal of values, like a way of thinking that just runs countercultural to how the world works. And as a Christian, you would know this to be true. If you're here today and you're not yet a Christian, this is really important for you to understand that the reason that Christians think differently in the world, or at least the reason we're supposed to think differently, is because how differently Jesus redeems broken, sinful human beings. After all, no one was richer than Jesus. No one was more powerful than him. And yet no one experienced greater loss or unfairness or injustice than him. He was a suffering savior. And for us, maybe who, who know the Bible story, or even if you're not a Christian and you understand that as a basic um, sort of category, a suffering savior, that was not an idea that was either prominent or popular in Jesus's day. And yet here he comes, he embraces hardship willingly and embraces it even joyfully because of what it accomplished. This is what the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter eight. I say this not as a command, but to prove the earnestness of your love, the earnestness of others, that your love is also genuine. And then he, he roots their, 
their desired obedience in this important biblical truth. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. So you gotta understand that the essence of what it means to become a Christian is this great reversal. Jesus is sinless, you are full of sin. Jesus who is sinless applies his sinlessness to your account, he takes all of your sin and applies it to his account. Jesus takes all of his humiliation and he provides it to your exaltation and he takes your exaltation in this world and he provides it now for his own humiliation. So there's this great reversal that takes place. What Paul is suggesting, or rather what James is suggesting here, is that the essence of the gospel is to understand this amazing, grace-filled reversal. So, he identifies two particular dynamics as it relates to what it means to boast wisely. First, we see that the lowly are to boast in their exaltation. So what does it mean to be lowly? The word lowly suggests someone who is lower in the socioeconomic status. According to Doug Moo, a New Testament scholar, this is someone who is poor and powerless. The word is used in the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament in the following ways. Here's a few examples, three of them. Psalm 102, 17. He regards the prayer of the destitute and does not despise their prayer. So the word destitute, same word. Psalm 10. O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed. That's the same word. So that the man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. And then Amos chapter two and verse seven, those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and turn aside the way of the afflicted. So he's, Amos is talking here about the judgment that comes upon those who do this to the poor. So when you think of lowly and think of poor, that's in context, James actually has financially poor people in mind, these poor Christians. Some of them may have been impoverished because of the famine. Some of them may have been impoverished because that's just where they were in life. And others may have been impoverished because they were trying to follow Jesus and it created some level of challenges. But as in the case in every culture, what we find here is that the poor are usually not exalted. They're not. Instead, often, not always, but often, the poor are victimized because of their poverty. And part of the reason is because of their poverty, they often, not always, but often, don't have the ability to fight back. Now, in the midst of kind of our world and culture and a bunch of conversations in the context of evangelicalism and even within our church, I wanna be very clear what I'm saying and what I'm not saying because of some things related to something called critical theory and also Marxism. I'm not saying, I'm not saying that every poor person is oppressed. Some are, but not every poor person is. In the same way that in a moment we're gonna talk about rich people, and not every rich person is sinful because they're rich. So we have to be careful about broad sweeping categories that try and solve the world's problems through things that don't reflect biblical categories. So I'm not attempting to do that at all, it's not helpful, 
But what we have to recognize is why James is talking about these lowly people. He does so because the scriptures do say that it is easier to take advantage of impoverished people. It's one of the reasons why for years we've supported the Christian Neighborhood Legal Clinic in Brookside. Because impoverished people don't have the resources or the background or the connections to fight back and as a result sometimes they're taken advantage of. Apparently, this was happening to these Christians as well. So either they were ashamed because of their lowly status, perhaps they were looked down upon by others, or, or maybe because of the dynamics that were in play, they, they had a hard time even pushing back against the environment within their culture. And rather than having them simply feel powerless or feel ashamed, what does James tell them? He tells them to rejoice in their exaltation. In other words, for them to be reminded who they are in Christ, listen carefully, lest they determine their value and their identity with how the world is treating them. They needed to be reminded who I am in Jesus and what my exaltation in him is really all about and where my true victory lies. I can tell you from personal experience that some of the most vibrant worship services I've ever attended have been in some of the poorest places in our country and around the world. And why did those folks get after it? Because they needed to be reminded who they really were. Now beyond financial categories, you realize, don't you, that there are other currencies within our culture besides money. Other ways that you can be impoverished, not just financially. For example, let's say you're a single adult and your friends find out that you're striving for purity and they mock you and they look funny at you because of your old school puritanistic approach and you've lost cool currency in their mind. You're poor. James says, remember, remember who you really are. Remember your identity in Christ. Let's, let's say that you're a business professional and everybody else in your field cuts corners and they're getting ahead and you refuse to cut those corners and you're not getting ahead like others and you wonder, is this really worth it? Because I'm getting left behind. And you need to be reminded, even though I'm lower in status, I need to be reminded who I am in Christ. Or maybe you're a high school young man who is teased at school because you refuse to talk in a way that is dishonoring or defiling about girls at school and people mock you and you've lost status. In that moment, you need to be reminded who I am in Christ. So what James is saying, when the hard press of circumstances come, maybe it's financial, maybe it's social status, you don't have sort of the, the power levels that you can, levers that you can pull at work or at the office or in your neighborhood or at your school, and you feel ashamed, and you go back to an empty lunch table, and you feel like everyone's laughing at me and I'm all alone, in that moment you need this truth. You are exalted in the eyes of Jesus because of who you are in him. The essence of the gospel, remember church, is this. God is holy, I'm not, Jesus saves. That last one that comes is really important. Christ is my life. So that when people look at you sideways or they think about you in a way that you don't feel like you are somebody, 
you need to be reminded, I am somebody in Christ. And that's just not like a, a, a head trip to try and boost your self-esteem. That is fundamentally biblically true and you can be reminded, no, this is what I live for. I don't live for their affection. I don't live for their affirmation. I don't live to be cool. There'll be a day when your high school yearbook, no one's gonna own it, who cares what they said in it and you won't even look that way anymore. Who cares about being cool in high school, right? And everybody over 40 said amen, right? But what will last is what it is that you do in terms of understanding who you are in Christ. So he says, let the lowly rejoice in his exaltation. He's going this great reversal. And then he says, and the rich in his humiliation. So if the lowly is to embrace his exaltation, the wealthy are to embrace their humiliation. What's he doing here? He's calling for the wealthy to look beyond their earthly status in life and to be reminded who they really are. In the same way that you can't paint with a broad brush with those who are lowly or poor, you can't paint with a broad brush with those who are wealthy. You can't simply say the problem is all the rich people. You can't say the problem is all the poor people. We need to. Embrace the nuance here of what James is attempting to do. Yet we also have to recognize that money not only gives you options, but if you think about it, money also creates honor. Money creates esteem. Money creates deference. Listen, when you have money, people treat you differently. You're not only able to buy nice things, but there are other perks. You get invited to certain parties. You get to join particular clubs. You get to spend other time with other people who also have money. You also have the ability to plan because you're not in survival mode. You're not living week to week. You're, 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 you're not dealing with one crisis after another without financial resources. And what can happen, it can, is that can create an air of self-sufficiency. It can create an air of godless pride. Your, your talents and your abilities may have brought you wealth, but the challenge is, is if you begin to believe that your talents brought you all this wealth and that somehow you are something, you can begin to live as if you're really in control of your life when the fact of the matter is you're actually not. So you can use your wealth to see it through a biblical lens or you can use your wealth as a means to have it be a mirror and look at yourself and think, I'm awesome. Look at all the stuff and what I have. And yet James warns, particularly those who are wealthy, about a coming judgment. Look at James chapter five. Lest you think that I'm just making this up or lest you think that James is just really um, against wealthy people, he's not, but he does warn wealthy people about the dangers that come with their wealth. James chapter five, verses one and through five, he says this, come now you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, your garments are moth eaten, your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. Whew. He says you have laid up treasure in the last days. And then he says, behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. So he's talking here specifically about not just all wealthy people, but those who have used their wealth and have been unfair in how they've treated people. 
He says, you have lived on earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. What is he saying here? He's saying there's coming a day when your balance sheet is gonna burn up and you're gonna stand before the king of kings and have to give an account for how you managed and led your life. And while nobody in this present life may be holding you accountable, and while nobody may be knowing what it is that you're doing, there's a king who is going to settle all accounts on that day. And so what James is saying here is this, that wealthy people should not be intoxicated by their wealth. So let me be again very clear. If, if you're wealthy, and how even we define that would be a little bit challenging. You take the average person in the United States compared to the global um, platform of humanity, and we're all wealthy from in some respects. If God has blessed you with financial resources, I'm not trying to make you feel guilty. There's amazing people in the Bible who are wealthy and did amazing things with it, lots of them. James is not saying that to be rich is automatically sinful, but what he is saying is that in the same way that those who are lowly need to embrace their exaltation, he's saying those who are exalted in the world and those who are rich need to go the other direction and embrace humiliation. The poor man needs to be reminded who he is in Christ. The rich man needs to be reminded who he is in Christ. The wealthy person needs to embrace humility. So what does that look like? Well, first and foremost, there's a theological piece here. You need a robust understanding of who God is. If I could just be rather blunt, theologically uninformed wealthy people are really dangerous. Because what happens is your wealth can cause you to be treated like a God, and if you don't have a big view of God, you'll begin to think that the distance between you and God isn't that great. So if you're wealthy, man, you better know theology and have a really big view of God so that when people treat you like you're a God, that you are humble and say, no, 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 no. I'm just a wicked, awful sinner who God has been gracious and kind to me. And in the context of your big understanding of your sinfulness and God's holiness and all that he's done for you in Christ, that's how you then are able to embrace humility going the opposite direction. The second thing is very practical, which is to find ways to not just think about humility in a general sort of sense, but to put on the mind of Christ, put yourself in a position where you are regularly humbled. Can anyone challenge you spiritually? Anyone get in your grill? Or when you feel embarrassed, or you feel like you don't measure up, or when others seem to be doing better than you, can you just count it as a reminder of, oh, it's really good to be reminded who I really am? Because wealth can insulate you from humiliation. And what James is saying is the lowly person needs to know who they are in Christ so that they can embrace their exaltation. The wealthy man needs to understand who he is in Christ so he can, um, so he can the lowly man can embrace his exaltation so that the wealthy man can then embrace his humiliation. We have to know who we are in light of who God is. Listen, this is also more than just about money. Let me expand the application. Because again, in the same way, like you can be poor in other things, you can also be rich in other things. For instance, you could be rich in natural good looks, in being wicked smart and intelligent, having a charismatic personality, or being an amazing conversationalist, or a great salesman, or a super talented harmonica player. 
just seeing if you're still listening. They, the, 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 the point is, is that whatever it is that you are really good at, that creates a currency. And if you're not careful, you can begin to believe your own press clippings. And as a result, James says, let the lowly rejoice in his exaltation and the rich exalt and rejoice in his humiliation. He's calling us to go the opposite direction of how the world works so that Christians could really embrace who they really are. Second, we're to think eternally. So the first point really unpacks the meat of the text. This second point is very brief. It just illustrates it. He says this in verse 10, like a flower of the grass, he will pass away, for the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls and its beauty perishes. And so he says, you wanna see an illustration? Just look at the fields and these flowers that come up, the sun scorches and the flower is gone. And what James wants you to realize, and you'll see this at other passages in the text, is we need to think eternally and realize that there's coming a day when your life is gonna be over. And that life goes by really, really fast. And you could be killing it in the month of August and be in really big trouble in September. And the world can turn and shift and the dynamics within what it means for us to live in this fallen and broken world can change in an instant. And James wants you to realize and to remember that you're not ultimate. In fact, he quotes from the book of Isaiah, here loosely. He loves the book of Isaiah. It says this, a voice says, cry, and I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is as grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades. When the breath of the Lord blows on it, surely people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades. But the word of our God will stand forever. So the idea is this regular reminder of what's underneath your life, your identity of who you are in Christ, of thinking eternally and thinking theologically and thinking in a way that, that, that fits biblically with who I really am. And that fits for the person who's been humbled and they're walking away from a conversation feeling like an idiot and feeling like, man, I, I don't do anything right and no one likes me and I'm at the, the, I'm the butt of everyone's joke. And in that moment, that person needs to be reminded who they are in Christ. Some of you are gonna need this this week. For some reason, you're gonna feel like an outsider. You're gonna close the car door and feel like, I, I don't even know what to do anymore. I don't even know who I am anymore. And you're gonna need to be reminded of who you are in Christ. And there's others of you who, because of your wealth and because of your prominence or because of everything that you're so good at, you can begin to think that the praise and the adoration and all of the affection is because you're somehow amazing and you need to be reminded, I'm a sinner saved by God's grace and without Jesus, I've got nothing. Because when the lowly person and the rich person stand before Jesus, there's gonna be no balance sheet before him. The lowly person won't be able to justify their disobedience because they were lowly. And the rich person won't be able to impress Jesus by their wealth. Their wealth will be gone, their excuses will be gone, and they'll all stand before Jesus. And the only thing that matters in that day is what did you do with the resurrected Christ? And how did his identity get inside of you that became like this true north when blessings or loss in affirmation or critique. You're popular and you're not. 
And who you are in Christ is the thing that keeps you centered. And James says, let the lowly person rejoice in his exaltation. Go the other way. And let the rich person glory in his humiliation. Let him go the other way. Because at the end of the day, the intersection of those two is nothing less than the cross of Christ. So let me ask you to think about five questions. Number one, friend, who are you? Who are you? Are you a Christ follower, a person who loves Jesus? Who do you live for? Maybe today would be a day when you would just say, you know what, I, I need to figure this internal world out. Secondly, think of this, in what ways are you poor right now such that you need to, res, need to rejoice and exult in your riches in Christ? Where are you experiencing loss? Or third, in what ways are you experiencing blessing or are you rich which require you to embrace humility, like to get after it and to be reminded, oh, be careful, embrace a humble mindset. Number four, are you trapped in the concerns and the anxieties of the world, not thinking about going the opposite direction? And finally, what is really most important to you and how do you really know? Suffering or hardship tends to reveal the things that we really love, and it also reveals where do we go when we really need to know who we are. Because a Christian is dying but living, sad but happy, suffering yet hopeful, lowly yet exalted, rich yet humbled, and this is the amazing, great reversal that Jesus bought and lives for even today. He's the author of the great reversal and invites you to embrace his life as he gave his life for you. Would you bow your heads with me? Lord, we pray that you would make us the kind of people whose hearts are set on embracing our identity in you. And Lord, in those moments when we are faced with the reality of having to live on that you are all that we need, would you remind us that it's true, that Christ, you are all that I need, nothing else, nothing more. So God, when you put us in that position, would you help us to love that scenario, not resist it? Help us to rejoice in what it means for Christ, you, to be our Savior, our King, and our Lord. Now, church, what I want you to do in this moment at home or here in the building is we're gonna sing a song together about the sufficiency of Christ. And I'd like you just to take the first few moments and just to meditate on the words in terms of what we're singing. When we sing hallelujah, all I want is Christ, Jesus is my life. I want you to think about how that applies in your life and where do you need to apply that today, either in bounty or in loss? What does it mean that Christ Jesus is your life. And then in a few moments, we'll stand together and sing. But for right now, let's just take a moment as we're sung over with our worship team to consider what it is that God through his word has said to us today.